Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, joining you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, for episode number 113. Jack is on the final moments of his New Orleans vacation that we touched on last week. He, I'm going to let him tell the story when he gets back next week, but it sounds of the the stories that I've heard via text message are that he is doing New Orleans New Orleans correctly. Uh, so we'll save that for ne- next week. Update on my push-up situation. I have yet to do one. If you listened to last week's episode, at the very end, I attempted to do a single push-up on air. Allison and Jack were convinced that cheering me on was going to mean that I was able to complete the push-up. It has not happened, but I will keep you posted as the weeks go on. Um, I'm doing that 30-day plank challenge, and the increments are really intimidating. So I today I have to do a plank for two full minutes. And if I can do a plank for two full minutes and I can't do a single push-up, I feel like there might be something physiologically wrong with my shoulder muscles. But I don't know. I'm just making excuses. So that's the update on my <laughs> my fitness front. Um, joining me in the studio, I have a very special guest all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. And I apologize on behalf of the Northeast weather patterns that you didn't get to be here on a 50-degree day Chef Sarah Gavigan, welcome to Sharp and Hot. Thank you so much. So uh, what uh, brings you, let me ask you first, what brings you to New York in January from the South? Did you crave a blast of cold air? Oh, yeah, I've definitely gotten a blast of cold air. No, uh, Southern Living was um, kind enough to ask me to come join and do a dinner, which is happening tomorrow night at the Chef's Club to celebrate 50 years of Southern Living. How fun is that? So I'm cooking with uh, Ashley Christensen and Kelly Fields and Asha Gomez. Clearly, I'm the dark horse. <laughs> so that is very excited and honored. Awesome. So I've been reading about your life story online, which is fascinating because you have one of my favorite life stories, which is that of a career changer. So tell, take me back to your early career days and what were you doing and what caused you to decide you needed to make a major change? Well, I've been kind of a serial hobbyist my whole life, really. And um, I think when I was young, I never really thought about it too much. I would just go, go, go. Um, So I started out wanting to be a marine biologist. Oh, wow. That was like the first thing I ever said, I really want to do this. Completely obsessed with Jacques Cousteau. That didn't pan out. I was not made to be a scientist, which I found out. And then I ended up getting a degree in communications and ended up in the film industry in Los Angeles. But I was more on the sector of short form. So I worked in commercials and more specifically in the making of commercials. So um, I represented cinematographers and set designers. I was an agent and was really kind of on that trajectory of building talent, nurturing talent. And that switched over. I uh, started an agency when I was 24 and I sold it when I was 30. Wow. 
And then I ended up starting um, a company in 2000, or actually in like 1999, right on the cusp, that represented independent record labels for music licensing and commercials. So I was the very first music licensing rep. There are many of them now. And uh, it was a really amazing time. Uh, it was still when putting your music in a commercial was completely verboten. And we had to really talk people into it. But What uh, was the stigma around it? I mean, I think the stigma around... Uh, that was really at the, the seismic shift of the music industry, right? When um, digital was just coming into the picture, iTunes was just coming into the picture, and everything was being changed. So at that time, people were still really believing that they were going to make money on record sales. So to sell out, I say with air quotes, and put your music into a commercial was still really kind of how most people felt. And I mean, I would come on sales trips here to New York all the time and sit and talk with labels to try and tell them, listen, do you really think this is a sellout? Or do you want to look at this as like a radio opportunity? Because if you put your music into a Pepsi commercial, it's like radio, except you're getting paid for it. So did that for um, eight years. And then it was just kind of right at the end of or right, right before the economy hit the tanker that I just woke up one morning and I was like, I think it's time to make a change. And so my husband and I decided to move back to Nashville. And that's where I'm from originally. Um, it was a hard choice to make. Uh, Nashville was not like the super sexy, amazing, opportunistic place that it is now when we moved there. Um, but California was not something that we saw ourselves doing long term. We have a 12 year old child now and she was six when we moved. And um, and then this crazy thing happened. I started making ramen in my kitchen. So had you been a lifelong eater? Had you been like a recipe fanatic? Or was it like, I'm going to jump into this thing more randomly? I worked 80 hours a week. And when I wasn't working or taking care of my daughter, I was planning dinner parties and who I was going to have over. And so my first cooking obsession was the 3,000 pound Adobe wood fire oven that my husband built me in our backyard in Venice when I was five months pregnant. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's kind of how it really, the obsession really took hold. Okay. And um, did you move that to Nashville? What, no, you can't move that, right? That stays. Okay. We, we, uh, the first one we built was um, we lived on a little street called Horizon and it, it was like a big hairy beast. It was so ugly. We didn't do the final plaster. Right. And then we moved to another house in Venice and we did a much prettier version that was kind of on a, a steel bed base and we had this you know glorious venice backyard and it was it was crazy because we would have these pizza parties and they would kind of have three waves like the family wave and then the kids would all get sent off with the sitters and then it would be like the adult wave and then at like 2 a.m then the chefs would start rolling in <laughs> and then it would go until sunrise so then i started becoming friends with chefs and I would follow chefs around at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Like, hey, chef, can I give you a coffee? Literally just to try and learn more about what was happening. And I um, want to point out the importance of that bravery. I think most people would be, myself included, terrified to do that. Just like, they're going to think I'm weird. I'm going to sound stupid. I had nothing to lose. Yeah, that's awesome. I had nothing to lose. I mean, it wasn't. I wasn't claiming that industry yet as mine. And so I was completely anonymous and I, I don't know I guess 
20 years of sales kind of gives you enough gumption (laughs) to do that. But um, I was so literally and figuratively hungry for to learn more. And I I had had very casual conversations about trying to make a move into the food world, but nothing was really planned. And when we moved to Nashville, the thing we missed the most was the time that we had spent in the Japanese communities in Los Angeles. I mean, I think one of the most wonderful things other than the obvious like beach weather type thing about Los Angeles is that you can almost travel to any country in the world in 20 minutes and eat there and really be completely and utterly transported. So, you know, the Asian food culture in Los Angeles is so vast and so phenomenal that, you know, we felt like we had been to Japan over and over and over again. And then when we finally did visit, we were like, yeah, we did. (laughs) So it it really took root for me. And the the world of izakaya and ramen, it was not a trend. You know, it, it was just something we loved. So this is six years ago. You make your first batch of ramen in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. How'd it go? Well, it was one of those things that I had kind of been having cocktail talk. Like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do a noodle pop-up. Because I was trying to be a housewife, and I was really not doing great at it at all. <laughs> housewife is hard. It was hard. I was a housewife for a year. I thought I was going to go crazy. After working 80 hours and being just a really creative person, I, you know, I needed another outlet to make me a good mom. You know, however you want to paint that for, you know. Um, I have, an, and let me just say this, incredible respect for women that are fully fulfilled from that. I, I, in some way, will always feel guilt that I'm not fully fulfilled from that. Moving I, on. I feel, yeah. I will validate that and tell you I feel exactly the same way. The woman who took care of my son so that I could start going yeah. back to work. Yeah. Five kids, stay-at-home mom, babysits, loves, is like fulfilled. And I would look, I would leave and think, she's good at it so that I don't have to be. But I felt yeah. a lot it's of It's a complex emotion. Yeah. Right? Yes. Sorry. So anyway. No. <laughs> um, uh, well, uh, I missed Roman terribly. Terribly, it was you know, it could make a bad day a good day, and it was the one type of food that you could really have a solo mission. You know, you walk in, you eat, it belongs to you for ten minutes. The world, I mean, everything else is gone, and then you're warmed from the inside out, and you can go back to your day. And there's nothing like that in Nashville. Um, you know, the South food in the South is a is a group event always. So uh, those two things combined, I just said, all right, I really want to try and do this. And then um, another restaurateur in Nashville, um, her name is Miranda uh, Whitcomb-Ponce. She's like, well, when are you going to stop talking about it and start doing it? And I think she just hit me on the right day and the right mood. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So I went to Porter Road Butcher and got a bunch of pork bones and – Basically, there is not until Ivan Orkin published his book. Uh, there was really nothing published in English about how to make ramen. So I geeked out and watched a bunch of like competitive ramen videos and started like trying to figure it out. So I just started boiling pork bones and learning, and I couldn't even get the real ramen noodle until I made a commitment to do an actual pop up. And this is actually a very funny story. I um, I found out who the company was that was making noodles for all the major ramen makers, Sun Noodle. And I called their Los Angeles office and said, 
yes, I'd like to talk to someone about what kind of ramen noodles you have. She goes, oh, honey, you want ramen noodles? And I said, yeah. She goes, what kind of ramen noodle you want? I said, I don't know. She goes, we have 110 kind of ramen noodle. <laughs> it's like, well, clearly I don't know what I'm talking about. So um, Sun Noodle actually sent me 175 portions of noodle by FedEx for free for my very first pop-up. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing people. Yeah. And um, and they've been really, really, really instrumental in my in my growth and learning and involvement in this kind of amazing little community of chefs in the ramen community. We have to take a fast break, but when we come back, I want to talk about the logistics of the pop-up, mm-hmm. how is it received, and what has happened since then. We'll be right back. listening to French Entrance by Teeth People. This is Sharp and Hot. We'll be right back. The following program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot. What a perfect ad for talking about ramen, delicious <laughs> pork. I am joined in studio with chef by Chef Sarah Gavigan. Welcome back. Thank you. So you decide you're going to do your first foray into the restaurant industry as a pop-up. Yes. What is involved in that? What kind of, like, did you need licenses? Where did you realize... It was easy or did, were you, what was the experience? It was completely renegade. And if I am, well, let me just say this. 20 years in the film industry prepared me for that. It, um, running a pop-up is very much like being on a film set. You really have to think ahead. You have to be well organized. And then you just have to go for it. Um, very extremely foolishly in my very first pop-up, I decided to do three turns of 75. Wow, that's a lot of Crazy <laughs> town, right? And we sold every single ticket. And it was at a place called um, 12 South Tap Room in my neighborhood. And the owners were really generous in letting me do it there on the day that they were closed. So that kind of became uh, the, the jumping off point. And I was stunned by how many people were literally and figuratively hungry for this food. Some that had had no experience with it and some that had had a lot of experience with it. Um, my favorite memory from that particular pop-up was a gentleman who I had spoken to on the phone was an older gentleman who had served in Japan um, like 
probably 50 years prior and had not had ramen in 50 years. So oh. I took the bowl out to him and sat it down and then kind of scuttled back to the kitchen and it was a half, you know, swinging door. And it was the first time in the whole night that I took a moment to kind of take it all in. And I watched him and he approached the bowl of ramen the way you should, you know, took a sip of the broth, took a bite of the noodles, and then just his head fell back and his eyes closed. And it was like that memory bell rang for him. And I, I mean, I sobbed. Yeah, I was like, I'm like oh my getting God. weepy. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, I did it, you know? That's awesome. So, it, you know, it just became fun from there it was exhausting no doubt about it but was it every it was every week when it was very you know we would just kind of go whenever we figured out we could and and then after one year of doing that it got much more serious and we got a commissary and started serving at the local farmer's market and you know other ramen makers like Yuji Yuji Ramen here in Nashville he was a huge inspiration to me and has become a really good friend and so you know all these different kind of models brought me to where we are now. I would never have been able to do what I've done with my restaurant now had I not kind of proven over three years what we've done and learned. It was my learning curve. Right, right. And it's a great way to do it if to, to prove it. And I think what you're saying is to prove it to yourself as much as prove that there's a market and like... Yeah, and to build yeah. street equity. And yeah. I, I mean, it enabled me to, from a financial point of view... Um, own a tremendous amount more of my business at the end of the day because I had built sweat equity. And so for anyone that's thinking about it, I, I, I mean, <clears throat> whatever the press may say about pop-ups being dead, I think that's poppycock. <laughs> I the think- press just needs something. And I say this as a member sort of of the pseudo press. They just need something to say. Yeah, you know, it's like if you have something interesting and people want it, um, it's not a trend. You know, it's it's you're you're feeding a culture some something that they don't have. I think that's going to continue to happen over and over in different cities. You know. So, what was the transition to brick and mortar like? Was it the ramen restaurant became brick and mortar? Yeah. And tell me the name of the restaurant and also the story behind it. Yes. So, um, I named the pop up Otaku South. Otaku is a very, very uh, interesting word that can have positive or derogatory meaning in, in Japanese culture. To the to the older set, it is extremely derogatory. Directly translated, it means someone who stays home and plays video games all day. But it really means like a person who's obsessed with Japanese anime or ramen. So if you were to go online, you'll see whole subcultures of people that call themselves otaku. So I just really have always kind of been an obsessive person and done things that way. And it just kind of suited. I love, <laughs> I love that. And it has to be a relatively new word, too, because video games are only so old also. So it's, yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. it's highly offensive, brand new and also awesome. I'm like, yeah, and own it. I love that it's transitioned, you know, uh, that it used to be derogatory and now it means something else. And as culture continues to transition, I felt like, you know, I'm a white girl from Tennessee making ramen. Right. So it felt appropriate. You also have a second restaurant called Little Octopus. Yes. And tell me about the naming of that restaurant. So Little Octopus was really, um, we wanted to do something that felt very fresh and clean. Um, food can be very heavy in Middle Tennessee, just by the nature of Southern food and kind of the growing up of the culinary scene in Nashville. Just didn't really have that. I, I spent 20 years in California. So I really missed that clean food. And Daniel Herget, who's the chef of that concept, brought 
the Latin influence from Miami. But the name uh, comes from my early obsession with wanting to be a marine biologist. And I worked for the Cousteau Society for um, four summers over the period of eight years. And um, Captain Jacques Cousteau was my first mentor. Wow. And uh, someone that had a real impression on my life. And the moment that I met him, um, I had been in a... Uh, I was very upset because I was sitting at dinner, you can imagine, with a bunch of French sailors, and I was 21 years old, and they thought I couldn't understand them, and they were speaking about me in French like I was a piece of meat. Oh, and, and you speak French? I, speak, I spoke fluent Italian, and I understood them. So I just threw my plate up in the air and started screaming in Italian and ran out to the beach, and I'm like crying, I'm like, why am I here? You know, just feeling sorry for myself. And I felt someone sitting next to me, and it was the captain. And I knew that he was on the island, but I hadn't met him yet. And he spoke to me in French, and he must have been standing on the periphery of the dining room, I think, when it happened. And he said, oh, Sarah, you can't be upset with them. He said, because you're like a little octopus. You always have your tentacles in everybody's business, and you're always changing colors. <laughs> That's so cute. So I had always just kind of loved the name and the idea yeah, of the yeah. name. We just kind of had to wait for the right moment to use it. I don't have any tattoos, but if I was to get a tattoo, it will be of an octopus tentacle. I know. I've flirted with it for a really, really long time. My father's a commercial fisherman, and so I have this, oh, like, wow. and he lost a boat. He was on a, a sinking boat and survived, oh, wow. and so I have this, like, dark pull of the ocean in my blood. My husband tells people I'm part salt water. And so. <laughs> octopi are the most incredible creatures. Incredible. Incredible. And delicious. I know. Yeah. And it's like, do you, have a, do you have a problem eating them? I don't. I don't either. And I feel that I should, but I, I don't. I don't either. And people are like, but they're so smart. I'm like, yeah, I know. And they're so good. Yeah. <laughs> I had like a really personal relationship with this little octopus that was at an aquarium in Santa Monica under the pier. I would take my daughter there all the time. And I would literally sit next to the tank and she would like come over and like literally sit in the corner where I was and I, her eyes, she just looked like she was purring. Yeah. And she would sit yeah. next to me. And then a year later, she they moved her into another tank and she didn't like that tank. So she unscrewed something and it flooded the entire aquarium. She was like not having it. That is amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, lo I love octopus. And I, yeah, I wish I had, like, I don't have as many like direct link stories, but everything I know about them, I love. Well, there's a study recently that uh, about their intelligence that something about like, you guys will have to look this up to get the direct, uh, you know, byline, but that they might be aliens. Really? Yes. So, are you follow? Do you follow space news? Because I'm a little bit of a space nerd. I don't. There is a star out there that there's. <laughs> they're trying to figure out why the star keeps flickering in this very particular way, and it's they really don't think it's this. They're like 99.9 percent .9 sure it's not, but there's an off chance possibility that it's an alien civilization that's passing between and why wouldn't us it and be? the light. I know it's like it's amazing. So where you are in marine biology, I'm like a total space nerd. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you have a 12-year-old daughter named I Augusta. I do. Does she enjoy the kitchen? She loves being in the restaurant. She does. She loves the hustle bustle. I think, you know, it's such a camaraderie and they're our family now. You know, we've all become family because we spend a lot of time together. And I think for a 12 year old kid, that's really fun because there's always this, um, you know, when you're 12, you want to be around the big girls. And I have some pretty extraordinary women that work for us. So I'm very proud of that. And I love that she gets to spend time with them. That's awesome. And what great mentors for her. It is. It is good so mentors. It shows hard work and 
I love that. We are almost out of time, but you mentioned the, your first mentor, and I want to ask you, what is the role of the mentor in your professional career? Have you had multiple, mm-hmm. like the further you get in your career, do you feel like you need another, I need another expert at this step? And then a follow-up question to that, if someone's listening who wants a mentor, how do you find one? Mm, that's a great question. You know, when I left the music industry, I taught for a while. I taught at the university level. And um, I, uh, Kevin Spacey had a really great quote about this. He says, if you have made it to the top of your industry, it is your moral imperative to send the elevator back down. Oh, what a great quote. I love that quote, That's right? Great quote. And I'm kind of at a place in my life where I'm, it's a duality for me. I'm sending the elevator back down and I'm trying to create relationships with chefs that can mentor me. And uh, I started this little project called the Koji Shio Project about a year ago based on this ancient Japanese ingredient that I was very surprised to find very few chefs know about. And it's basically a fermented rice salt that is the beginning of sake or the beginning of miso. But it also has just these incredible umami properties and breaks down proteins in such a beautiful way. And it was kind of my lead in to try, like, what am I going to say to a James Beard award winning chef? Hi, chef. I make ramen and I've been doing this for two and a half years. (laughs) So it kind of became like, you know, my conversation. And so... um, It's really nice because I send a box out to these chefs that show interest in wanting to do this project with us. And so in the box is the raw kind of dehydrated rice that's inoculated with the koji and the asparillus. And then the finished product that we make in our kitchen and the rules of the game. They have three months um, to play with the ingredients and then send recipes back. So we're building a bank of all of these recipes. And it it kind of creates a great mentorship for me. I learned so much from their experiences. So it just opens a door. I think if you're looking for a mentor, look for the doors. Anytime in my career, that's what I've done. If I've ever been trying to get from one place to another, I think you just kind of like have to sit back a little bit. You know how sometimes when you hold on so tight to something, you forget what you're holding on to. If you just let go, everything starts to happen. Sarah Gavigan, thank you so much for making the trip up to New York. How do people find out more about you? Well, Otaku Ramen is our new website, and we're pretty active on Instagram. Um, I spend probably most of my time right now on the Otaku Ramen and Sarah Gavigan Instagram feed. So always putting new stuff up there. Awesome. Uh, Also, I don't know if this is relevant at all to your life, but there is a podcast that I love out of Nashville called Jesse versus Cancer. Are you familiar with I this? I am not. So his name is Jesse Case. He, he grew up in Nashville also. He's younger than both of us. I think he's 28. Um, he is a stand-up comedian who was living in LA and was hmm. diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Wow. So he's moved back to Nashville to be near the hospital and also home with his parents, but it's awesome oh wow so i will put in a plug it's very funny it's very rambly it's very strange but if you are no i want to hear that and i'll tweet him to go and eat some i would love that okay cool uh that's the only thing i had the only nashville connection that i have but i was like wow what's what are the odds um Listeners, you can find me on Twitter at Chef Emily P. And I sent out another huge pile of cookbooks this week 
to you guys who have posted pictures when you receive the books. Thank you so much. It is such an awesome way for me to learn that you are out there and paying attention to this podcast. And that feels awesome. Use the hashtag sharp and hot on Instagram. I will get in touch and mail you a book from my collection. I will tell you that my aunt, whom I adore, is having her carpet redone and gifted me two giant crates of cookbooks and said, you can send these to your listeners. So now I have a completely random pile of things that I will send to you. You just hashtag sharpen hot a photograph you're already taking. Um, Literally, I need to get these books out of my house, people. So help me out. If there is any uh, thing that you want to get in touch with me about, I am on Twitter at Chef Emily P. You can email me, Chef Emily at sharpandhot.com. Jack will be back next week to regale us with his New Orleans stories. Thank you to Liz for engineering the show. I'm sorry I didn't get you on the air, girl. <laughs> I said if it comes up organically. Are you leaning into the mic? I can't tell what's happening. (laughs) Even better. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I love you all. Until next week, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.